Amos chapter number 5. Amos chapter number 5 this evening. And uh, we've been sort of trying to keep people on their toes with the book of Amos. We preached on Sunday nights for the first little while on it. And then we preached a couple weeks on Sunday morning on the book of Amos. And now we're back here on Sunday night. And you don't know what I might do next week. Amen. Uh, so there's no telling, and uh, if I'm being frank with you, I don't know what I might do next week, but uh, we'll handle that as we come to it. Amos chapter number 5, and this will be part 8 as we sort of walk through the book of Amos. It's not a series. I've been very careful to say it's not a series. We're just sort of preaching, going walking through it, preaching what the Lord lays on our hearts. I wouldn't call this an exhaustive study of the book of Amos, but we've merely been going through and trying to apply the Word of God as we have uh, seen that it, it, it speaks to our hearts and our lives. And so Amos chapter number 5 this evening, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 15. The Word of God says, Hear ye this word which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen, she shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land, there is none to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave an hundred, and that which went forth by an hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to naught. Seek the Lord, and ye shall live, lest ye break out like a fire, like fire in the house of Joseph, and devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. Ye who turn judgment to wormwood, and leave off righteousness in the earth, seek him that maketh the seven stars in Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into the morning, and maketh the day dark with the night, that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name that strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate. They abhor him that speaketh uprightly. For as much therefore as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just, they take a bribe, they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. Therefore the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that ye may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. Hate the evil and love the good, and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious under the remnant of Joseph. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this evening. What a blessing it is to be in your house. Now, I pray you'd take your holy, inerrant, inspired, preserved word and that you'd use it and wield it in our hearts deftly. Pray that you would speak to us about those matters of our life that very often the flesh and pride would seek to conceal. And may you lay them bare before your holy throne. Father, may you deal with us according to your will And may we be drawn closer to you, made more into the image of Christ. Father, bless the preaching now. We do ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The passage of Scripture that we have read is marked to me by two things that I want to point out right away. The first thing that I notice when I approach this passage of Scripture is that it is basically divided into two portions. 
The first three verses provide for us what we might call the preamble to the rest of the text that we read. The first three verses uh, in and of themselves are very uh, impactful and very powerful, but they are separated, it would seem, from the verses that follow them. The first three present to us a lamentation over the house of Israel. And then verses 4 down through verse 15 present to us an invocation to the people to change the way that they were living. I would say it this way, that in the first three verses, we have a preamble. And then in verses 4 through 15, we have a plea to the people to change how they're living, what they're doing, and how they are behaving towards God and His Word. There is a second thing that strikes me, and I would venture a guess that some of you all probably picked up on it as well. We have a theme developing when we walk through these verses. Verse number 4 says, To seek the Lord. It says, For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. Down in verse number 6, we have a similar statement. It says, Seek the Lord, and ye shall live. Verse number 8 has another similar phrase. It's not identical, but verse 8 says that we are to seek Him that maketh the seven stars and Orion. And then when we look down in verse number 14, we have another similar statement, though it deviates in one marked way. It doesn't tell us to seek the Lord, but it says, Seek good and not evil that ye may live. I want to take a moment tonight and preach to you on this thought, Seek ye me. Of course, in saying that, I'm saying we ought to seek the Lord in our life and in our walk with God. You see, these people that we have before us, and I'll tell you, you could preach this very same message, these very same truths to a lost man, and you could preach to him about how he ought to abandon the things he's leaning upon and seek the God of glory. But I'd remind you that these things that were written were written to believers. They were written to Old Testament Jews that had the Word of God, had the promises of God, and believed in the God of the Bible, at least nationally and and publicly they would have proclaimed that they believed in Jehovah and who He was. And yet it is to these people that God, time and time again, four times over, commands them that they're seeking the wrong thing in what they're doing. They should instead be seeking Him. Now, what prompted this uh, statement from the prophet? Well, first let's notice the preamble, just so you have a clear picture of what's going on. It would seem in the first three verses that Amos is sort of spirited away to a future time when he gazes upon and surveys the ravaged and ruined city of Samaria. He's looking around and he sees a city that has been laid waste by the Assyrian armies that God prophesied would come and destroy them. Amos, in what he describes it, uh, would seem as though he's an eyewitness. And I think in a spiritual sense he was. I think part of that prophetic vision he received was to see the rubble, to see the ash heap of what had once been a great and glorious city. He says three things that he sees first. In verse number 1, he says, Hear ye this word which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen, she shall no more rise. He saw a city defeated when he looked at the future of Israel. 
He saw that though at that time they seemed to be seated comfortably in their own autonomy and in their own national security, that it would not take long if they continued down the path they were on before their city would be destroyed, before their country would be laid waste. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. The Assyrian ruler Tiglath-Pileser marched into the city of Samaria and destroyed the kingdom of Israel, those northern ten tribes, took them away and so utterly destroyed them that they lost their national identity. The Samaritans are the people that were the product of that destruction. The Assyrians intermarried with the Jews in order to weaken their sort of culture, cultural or ethnic identity. And the Samaritans were a product of that. But when Amos is standing here, he looks out and he sees a city that has been beaten, that has been defeated, that the walls have been cast down, and she shall no more rise. Can I tell you something? Listen, I fear sometimes that if we were to read our Bible with open eyes, we'd see a lot that would apply to our nation. This isn't my message, but I just want to say it this evening. I mean, I, I think about, and I was speaking with someone about this in the past few days. I've been uh, studying a little bit on uh, the uh, uh, British history. And I'm talking about history. I'm talking about way, way back. I'm talking about uh, starting in 55 B.C. when the Romans under Julius Caesar sought to take the island of Britain. And of course, in that first uh, venture, he had he failed. But that's really when the when the written history of Britain as a place begins. There just isn't anything historic prior to that, you know that, that Britain spent 600 years as part of the Roman Empire. That's about as long as if you went from the day of William Shakespeare to the day that we're living today. 600 years. You know, I bet they thought to themselves, Rome will never fall. Rome will never fall. For 600 years, six centuries, all they knew was Rome as a constant. But sure enough, the day came whenever Rome fell. You know, we look at it as Americans and it's hard for me to even fathom a world without America as the chief superpower. But you know, we're just, a, we're just a pause. We're just a, we're, we're just a blip on the map of human history. We better heed well this warning. Every nation that has turned its back on God has been turned into hell. The psalmist said it would happen. I fear sometimes that if we could see the way Amos would see, uh, we might look around and see cities like New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and Nashville and Atlanta and Knoxville, Tennessee laid waste because they've turned their backs on God. Amos saw a city defeated. Look at the end of verse number 2. He said, she is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. He saw a city that was destroyed. The land lay fallow. The land had been laid waste. And of course, that's precisely what happened afterwards. After the Assyrians fell, much of that country sort of fell into disrepair and grew fallow. Much of that land that had once been a glorious populated place that was brimming with people and activity and happiness and joy was destroyed because of their sin. And then look at verse 3. He says, for thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave an hundred, and that which went forth by an hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. He saw a city deserted by its inhabitants. Where once there had been a multitude of people, now there was nothing left. And it's almost as though as the prophet is describing this scene of destruction and sorrow, this, and let's use a Bible word, this lamentation is being sung for the fallen kingdom of Israel. It's almost like the Lord breaks through into the mind and heart and soul of Amos and once more pleads for His people 
to not go down this path. Can I tell you something? When we get sin in our life and when we're uh, set on a path of destruction, uh, you know what God said through the prophet Hosea about Israel? said, how hard shall I let thee go? Here's what he was saying. He said, I don't want to let you go. I don't want to see you go down this path. I don't want to see you wreck your life. The voice of God breaks into Amos' vision and cries out once more for the people of Israel to turn back to him. And in verse 4, he says, For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. You know what that tells me? There was hope in their day. There was hope. It wasn't all lost. If they had chosen to turn back to God, then in His grace and mercy, He would have He would have adjusted their course. He would have changed their destiny. But sadly, we know the rest of the story. Here's what we ought to do, though, as Americans, as people, as members of a New Testament church in this day that we live in, we ought to consider carefully the warning that is given. Let's notice these four pleas, and I'll give them to you very quick, and then we'll go have a little fellowship. Look at verses 4 and 5. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. Now, here's what he says. There's both sides to this. There's who we need to seek. Well, we know we need to seek God. But then there's the other side. If we're not seeking Him, what are we seeking? Can I tell you something? No man lives unto himself. No man dies unto himself. If we're not living for the Lord, we're sure enough living for something else. How were they living? Well, he embodied it in the names of three places. He says, but seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba. Now, all three of these cities were places of worship for the northern kingdom. These were all places where they had uh, altars. They were all places where they had groves. They were all places where they gathered together and engaged in their false form of worship that centered around a golden calf. And God commands them to not seek those places, but instead to seek Him. But you know, there's a reason the Israelites chose those places. They chose them because they were of significance to their history as a nation. In fact, each of those places represented something noble in its past, but that had been perverted and corrupted and turned into something false in the day that they lived in. Here's what I think this first plea is saying. Listen carefully. I think God is saying, abandon false worship and seek Him. All these were places where they gathered to worship. And they would have said they were worshiping Jehovah. Can I remind you, not everything that says it's Christianity is Christianity. I'm not just talking about there's people do things a little different than me. I'm not just talking about there's people have different preferences than me. I'm not just talking about there's churches with green carpet on the floor, churches with red carpet on the floor. I'm talking about there are things that call themselves Christianity today that in no way bear the marks of biblical Christianity. What they were doing in Samaria and Dan, in Gilgal and Bethel and Beersheba, they would have called it Judaism. They would have called it Old Testament worship. But the problem is it didn't look nothing like the form of worship that God gave from Sinai. It didn't look nothing like the form of worship that had come down uh, from God unto Abraham. It didn't look anything like what they wanted to claim that it was. It was centered around a golden calf. Now, where do we hear about that elsewhere in the Bible? Well, you remember when God was given true worship up on Sinai, the devil was given false worship down at the foot of the mountain. While God was making Himself known unto Moses, uh, the people were gathering together gold to fashion 
fashion a golden calf. And that golden calf was not uh, just supposed to be an embodiment of Ra, the sun god, or an embodiment of, uh, of Isis or Osiris from Egypt. They said it was the gods that brought them out of Egypt. But Aaron said about that god that we're keeping a feast unto the Lord, unto Jehovah. Here's what they were trying to say. They were trying to make a graven image unto God. You know why God forbids us from making a graven image unto Him? I'm not talking about worshiping other gods. I'm talking about God forbids us in the Ten Commandments from making a graven image unto Him. You know why? Because we'll never get it right. God would just a lot rather tell us who He is than us tell Him who we think He is. Uh, you know, every time that man starts to monkey with and, and, and tinker with who God is and with what worship is and with what the Bible says, they always get it wrong. God don't need us to do that because He's already revealed those things to us. And so He said, I don't want any graven images. When mankind tried to make the first graven image to Jehovah, you know what they thought He was? They thought He was a cow. Now, He's a lot of things, man. He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Lily of the valley. He's the Rose of Sharon. He's the Balm of Gilead. But He sure enough ain't no cow. All the things that God would say about Himself, and they somehow managed to find one that was wrong. You see, that's how man is. And they had revived this in the days of Jeroboam after the kingdom of Israel, where the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms. They had revived this false form of worship. But now somebody's going to say, well, that's good, preacher. I appreciate the history lesson. But what in the world does that have to do with me and where I live today? Well, you know, it's interesting when you think about these three places. Because they all bear significance. And I don't think there's probably anybody going home and worshiping a golden cow when they get there. But I do think there are some of us that have allowed these very same things or what's embodied or represented by them to permeate our form of worship. For instance, Bethel is a familiar place in the Word of God. Bethel was, of course, the place where Abraham built his first permanent altar. Now, right when he gets to the plains of Moreh, he builds an altar uh, to give thanks to the Lord. But he moves on from that. And the Bible says that he pitched his tent between Bethel and Hai, and he built an altar there unto the Lord. And that's where he called upon God. By the way, it's interesting. Bethel and Hai. One means the house of God. One means a heap or a place of ruin. That's a picture where we as Christians are supposed to live. Here we are, pilgrims and strangers in this world. we got a heap of ruin behind us. That's the world and the life that we live. The house of God, the dwelling place of God is in front of us. That's the place of God where we're going and where we're headed to. And that's where Abraham built his altar was right there by Bethel. It's also familiar in Scripture because uh, it's the place where Jacob saw his vision of the ladder let down from heaven and where he recommitted himself unto the Lord. The name Bethel means house of God. It was a place, listen now, of revelation. Why did they call it the house of God? They said God lives here. You know why? Because every time they went there, God revealed something about Himself unto them. But now, fast forward hundreds of years, and God is saying, don't seek Bethel, instead seek Me. There's a lot of things we could say about it. And let me say there is a danger in getting so wrapped up in the trappings of the house of God that we forget about the God of the house. But you know, what it reminds me of is this place of revelation that we ought to never have a worship, listen now, consumed with revelation above relationship. 
So what do you mean, preacher? Listen, I love the Word of God. I love preaching the Word of God. I love studying the Word of God. You want to see me get excited, man? You just put me like a bloodhound with my nose on some truth in the Word of God that I can search out and hunt out and see the connections and synapses are firing off in my mind and my soul. I love the study of the Word of God. The Word of God is the very bread of life. It's the very water that uh, that, uh, that that quenches our thirst. I'm not saying anything to denigrate the Word of God, but I want you to hear me tonight. It's possible to have a thoroughgoing knowledge of this book and still not know the God of this book. It's possible to have an academic pursuit of this uh, of this book and never know the God that wrote it. We were talking in Sunday school a little bit about this this morning. We were talking about Mr. Westcott and Mr. Hort that developed the Westcott and Hort New Testament that all the new versions of the Bible are based upon. They're based upon the Nestle Allen Greek text, but the Nestle Allen Greek text differs in only 300 ways or less than 300 ways from the Westcott and Hort Greek text. That's about the equivalent of third John. So it's basically an identical document. Westcott and Hort developed this uh, Greek document out of corrupt manuscripts, 42 manuscripts uh, that they developed this corrupt document out of. But you know that Westcott and Hort, they were some of the preeminent theologians of their days. Uh, even today, you can go and in some people's uh, personal libraries, some preachers' personal books, they'll have things like Westcott's commentary upon uh, Hebrews or, or, or uh, Fenton, uh, Fenton Hort's uh, commentary on Galatians. And they were lauded theologians in their day. And yet, whenever you read their personal letters, the only thing that really survives narratively about their life, there's about 600 pages of personal letters for each of these men. They're called the Life and Letters of Westcott and Hort. Somebody gathered together all of their letters and published them into about 600 pages for each man. 1,200 pages combined. You know, you'll find when you read through those, you'll find where they lovingly adore the concept of Mariolatry, the worship of Mary as a deity. They talk about, uh, they talk about Darwin and his hot new theory of evolution and how he was really on to something. Uh, they talk about all kinds. You know what they don't talk about? In 600 pages for each of them, neither one of them ever mentions anything about a salvation testimony. I told our Sunday school class this morning, man, I'm proud to say most of the people at Walridge Baptist Church, you couldn't talk to six minutes without them wanting to say something about what God has done in their life. These men spent 600 pages. Each of them never once said, let me tell you about the day that I got born again. And these men were the preeminent theologians of their day. It's possible to have a worship that is centered on revelation instead of relationship. God didn't give you this book because you needed something to learn about. He gave you this book because you needed to learn who He is. And this book ought to be the vehicle and the conduit to a relationship that we have with the God of glory. When we open it, it ought not just be what does the the Bible say in an academic sense, but it ought to be what does God say to me through this Bible. Bethel was a good place. It wasn't a bad place. And it was a place where God had made Himself known. But some people get fixated upon the academic pursuit of the Word of God to such a degree that they forget that God's trying to talk to them through that Bible. He's trying to speak to them. Are you with me tonight? So it's possible. He says, abandon your false worship and seek Him. Don't have revelation above relationship. What about this place called Gilgal? Gilgal is another important place in the history of the people of Israel. Uh, It has several significances in the Bible, but the main one and the place where it's really uh, introduced to us is when Joshua came with the children of Israel over through the River Jordan. God parted the River Jordan and He passes through and they're getting ready to go into the Promised Land. And there in Joshua chapter number 5, the Bible tells us that He gathers all the men that were born in the wilderness. Uh, So not that first generation, but the second generation. That first generation had been circumcised 
circumcised by Moses, but that second generation had never been circumcised. So Joshua gathers all of them together and circumcises the men before they go into the land of Israel. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that circumcision was a ritual. It was a ceremony and it was a picture of God separating the believer from the old way and life of the flesh. It pictured something. Paul's very clear to us in the New Testament that neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature in Christ Jesus. So just that act of circumcision did not do anything to sanctify a person. It was a ritual. That place where he did that was Gilgal. In fact, that's why they named it that. Gilgal means a rolling away. And it says in Joshua 5, 9, The Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, from off you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. So Gilgal was a place of ritual. And you know, it's a reminder to me, I ought not have a relationship that is more ritual than relationship. There are some people that they've got more, that they've got more ceremony than they do spirituality in their walk with God. They've got more ritual than they do relationship. Can I tell you that there are certain... I want to be very scriptural and very careful in what I say. There are no sacraments in the Word of God. A sacrament denotes that it has salvitic or spiritually energizing qualities. There are no sacraments in the Word of God. But there are ceremonies. There are rituals in the Old Testament. And we even in the New Testament, we have ordinances that are given to us. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I think those are beautiful things. They're meant to picture something. Because that's what a ritual is for. Just as circumcision was meant to mirror or picture a spiritual truth. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're meant to mirror or to picture a spiritual truth. I think those are beautiful things. But listen, it ought not be that the substance of our relationship with God is merely rituals, like a bunch of rank pagans. It ought to be there's something more to it than merely that. Can I tell you something? We've got a lot more rituals than that. We've got a lot of things that we do. You know, for some folks, coming to church ain't nothing but a ritual. It's part of their routine, something they do to sort of tip their hat to God, but not because they expect on hearing from the God of glory. It's possible for the way that we sing or the way that we worship to just become something that is ritualistic in nature. It's not birthed out of anything real and genuine, but all it is is merely us polyparroting the things that we believe are expected of us. Can I tell you something? God just as much hates ritualism as He does rank idolatry. God doesn't just want a bunch of robots down here parroting out whatever we think is expected of us. God wants a relationship with us. If we can't be anything, man, we ought to be real. You may not be able to be awesome, but you can be real. You may not be able to be real awesome, but you can be real. There's a lot of things we can't be, but one thing we can all commit to be is to be real and for our relationship with God to be in sincerity. And then there's a place called Beersheba. Now, the first place Beersheba is really talked about is it's the place uh, where uh, where uh, Hagar is cast out and God opens her eyes and she finds a, a well of water. But that's really not what its name was given for. Uh, its name was given because that's the place that Abraham uh, dug a well of witness between him and the Philistine king Abimelech. There had been a contention over wells that had been dug. And so Abraham, he says, we're going to settle this thing uh, so that there's no question in the future I'm going to dig this well and we're going to know that this is the boundary and this is going to be a well of witness of Imelech that me and you have both stood here on this day and agreed to these boundaries and agreed to these water rights this place is going to be a place of memorial before God the Bible tells us that was why. It says because of that he called that place Beersheba because there they swear both of them. And Beersheba means a place of, of seven wells. And it was a place of memorial. 
Can I use another word? It fits with my sermon. I think it's a little more descriptive. So we've said our, our worship should not be that of revelation above relationship or ritual above relationship. But can I say this? Our walk with God ought not to be a relationship of remembrance above relationship. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, it ought not just be about what happened 20 years ago, 40 years ago. Thank God for what He did back then. But hey, you know that God's still alive today? God is as alive today as ever He has been. You know, there's a, there's a danger that we allow nostalgia to replace passion in our lives. I'm not against nostalgia. I, I'm probably what some people have called an old soul. I, I generally like anything that's old as long as it's not sweet tea or cheese. And even cheese has to be a little old. Amen? That's why it's cheese. I, I, you know, there's something. You with me tonight? <laughs> Y'all looking at me weird. Maybe I just am weird. That's fine. I'm saying this, I, I, I tend towards that. My disposition is to appreciate things with a little age upon them. But I'm saying this to you, our relationship with God ought not just be about what He did 20 years ago. It ought to be what He's doing today and what He's going to do in our lives. It ought to be a living and vibrant thing. So the first command, He says, seek me in lieu of what? Well, I think what He's saying is abandon your false worship. And seek me. It ought not to be about all these other things. It ought to be about me. Inasmuch as these other things are brought in. By the way, you know all three of those things. If you're seeking Him, all three of those things will be a part. Certainly if you're seeking the Lord, revelation is going to be a part of it. God's going to speak to you through His Word. Hey, listen, if you're seeking Him, part of that is to obey His command concerning baptism. It's to obey His command concerning the Lord's Supper. And then all the other things that are become routine in our life. Hey, listen, it's the will of God for you to go to church. It's the will of God for you to worship. It's the will of God for you to have discipline and consistency. We ought not be like a ship driven upon the sea. So ritual will be a part of it. And you know that remembrance will be a part of it too. You know, it's a scriptural thing to cast our memory back to what God has done. I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm saying they ought not be everything. There ought to be something more. It ought to be about seeking Him presently in this moment to know Him personally, to know Him experientially, to see Him do great things in our lives. So he says, abandon false worship and seek Him. There's a second one. Look at verse number 6. The Bible says, seek the Lord and ye shall live, lest He break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and devour it. And there be none to quench it in Bethel. Now, things were similar in their day as they are today. Here is a prophet thundering forth a warning against the wayward people. And there were always some in that day, and there's always some in this day that want to say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. There's always some that want to say, why are you all doom and gloom all the time? Hey, listen, why, why are you always criticizing people? Why are you always dealing with all this sin stuff? Why can't you just talk about God's love and God's mercy? Why can't you just talk about heaven and quit preaching about hell? There's always going to be a group of people that's going to say, why don't you tone it down and quit talking about all this negativity? Uh, there were people in Amos's day, and we find out, in fact, a little more later on in the book of Amos, he had to withstand a wicked high priest in that day that tried to do that very thing to him and tried to, tried to rebuke him for declaring what God had told him to say. And there were some in that day that were saying, hey, why are we all panicking? Everything's going well. In light of that, here's what God says, abandon false hopes and seek Him. There were some that were saying, well, Assyria is not that big of a deal. 
And even if they are, we have strong borders and we have strong walls. And even beyond that, we have this golden calf that we have been worshiping and surely he would not abandon us. And Amos, he's just an alarmist. He's not even from around here. He's from down in the south part in the land of Judah. He was probably sent up here just to disturb us and just to disrupt us. And to that, God says, you better seek me while you can and not lean upon anything believing it can spare you from judgment. He says basically three things. First, he reminds them that they may have hopes and they may have false hopes, but surely judgment would come without delay. How does he describe it? He says that God would break out like a fire in the house of Joseph. Now, when you use that imagery, what you're trying to communicate is suddenness, surprise, and speed. When a fire breaks out, the idea is that somebody wasn't watching it. When a fire breaks out, the idea is that it didn't take long, but there were flammable things around and it just caught and it just took off. And he's saying that's how the judgment of God will be. Hey, listen, we may live in a world that mocks God. We may live in a world that scoffs at God. We may live in a world that shakes its fist at God and declares that all things remain the same as ever they were. But can I remind you, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, Peter said. And a thousand years is as a day. God don't work off of your watch or my watch. He's got His own watch that He works off of. And one thing you can mark down, more sure than the sun rising and setting, more sure than death and taxes, more sure than heartache and sorrow, is that the Word of God is true. It's always been true. God has never hemmed Himself in to say, judgment's going to come on this certain day. But what God has said is, I'm going to be as long-suffering as long as I can suffer, but there's going to come a time. And when it happens, it'll happen surely. It says judgment will come like delay, and indeed it did. There came a day when they came and knocked with the hammer of war upon the gates of Samaria, and judgment had arrived. Hey, you know, that's true for us as well. Judgment begins at the house of God. It begins at the house of God. It don't begin somewhere else. It begins at the house of God. That means God's going to deal with His own people before He deals with anybody else. You know, in your life and mine, God has warned us of, of seeking Him in sincerity and not being uh, drawn and dragged into a uh, sort of formalism that's dead and that's meaningless and that's based on just routine and ritual and instead having a vibrant life with Him. You know what He said? That if we won't live that way, if we won't bear fruit, He'll cut off that branch. He'll purge us from that vine. God's not saying He's going to send us to hell, uh, but He is saying that He's going to uh, take us off the scene and take us out of this life. Uh, he is saying that He's going to remove us from being just dead wood hanging on to the vine that is His body, that is His church in this world that we live in. God's saying, you're either going to produce fruit or I'm going to purge you. We can say, well, it'll never happen to me. But the reality is there's going to come a day when it'll come and when it does, there won't be nothing that'll delay it. Judgment would come without delay. Number two, judgment would come without deterrent. So what do you mean? Well, what does He say? He said when that fire breaks out, it's going to devour the house of Joseph. In other words, it's not going to stop short. Uh, nobody's going to be able to put it out. It's, it's not going to just burn out. It's going to burn until it consumes everything. You know, there's no telling how much destruction could happen in our lives if we allow sin to run rampant. Sin destroys. Sin will destroy your life and my life and your children's life and your family's life. 
the sins that you think God's going to wink at and ignore will destroy you. The sins that we as a church might think that God's going to wink at and ignore because we might be better than the church down the road. We might be better than the Christian that lives next door. We might be better than somebody else. That don't matter a lick to God. God deals with us as, as His children. God chastens every son whom He loves and He loves every single one of us. And as such, hey, listen, we can, we can make all the excuses. We can lean on the false hopes. But when judgment comes, it'll come without determent. It'll devour completely. And then it'll come without deliverance. He says there'll be none to quench it in Bethel. Bethel was one of their chief places of worship. And he was saying this, those priests that are preaching to you that judgment won't come, those people that are, that are singing to you songs of joy and peace and contentment and that problems will never arise, their songs will not drown out the war cries of the Assyrians. Their, their sacrifices under that golden calf will not quench the fires of destruction when it comes. In other words, when God pours judgment out, there's none to deliver. I said, when God pours out judgment, there's none to deliver. Man, I remember what Eli said to his boys whenever uh, Hophni and Phinehas were engaged in all sort of iniquity. And he said this, you know, if a man wrongs another man, then somebody can plead on his behalf. But he says, if you sin against God, who's going to plead for you? He was saying, if you're, if you're going up against God, who's going to deliver you? And I'm saying this, when we live in sin in our lives, we need to abandon false hopes. We need to turn on that sin and we need to seek Him. We need to repent of that and turn to Him and abandon false hopes that somehow we will escape unscathed. Look down at verse 7. We find another one of these seek statements. He says, ye who turn judgment to wormwood, and leave off righteousness in the earth. Now, that's a good description of how our world is today. You know what he's saying when he says judgment to wormwood? Wormwood was a bitter root. And it was something that if you added it to something, it would make it unbearably bitter so that it would make a person sick. And often it would be used to purge. If someone had uh, eaten poison, it might be used to purge their system because it could not be stomach. You know what he's saying? You've turned what ought to be judgment, what ought to be justice, what ought to be a sad... You know, it ought to be to a righteous people with a righteous government, with righteous law. It ought to be that judgment is a salve. It ought to be that judgment is a balm. It ought to be that judgment is a joy. It ought to be that we think to ourselves, you know, we might have un- unrighteousness in society, but if we do, it's going to be dealt with and it's going to be reckoned with and judgment is going to take care of it. That ought to be how society is. But you know what happens when injustice is rampant upon every uh, side? You know what happens when people because of their position or because of their power or because their prosperity are allowed to get away with all manner of vile and wicked things? It makes a people bitter against the concept of judgment. Anybody anybody listening tonight? I'm talking about it makes you bitter. It it, It makes me a little mad. It makes me a little mad that they'll throw a soccer mom in jail for not wearing a mask, but they'll let a pedophile be murdered in a prison and no one even cares about it because he's got names that they don't want getting out. I'm talking about it makes me mad. I'm talking about it make, It makes me a little bitter uh, that people that corrupt and abuse our political system are allowed to go free and meanwhile they'll throw you in jail if you drive around with a tail light broken. Talking about judgment to wormwood, it makes bitterness makes bitterness. He says, you turn, you with me tonight? I'm, ta- I'm, I'm just asking, if you're not, that's okay. I'm just saying, if anybody knows what I'm talking about tonight, you ought to help me and give me a little witness that it makes you a little bitter against things when you find a system where injustice is so rife. 
He says, ye who turn judgment to wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth. He says, this is what you ought to do. You ought to seek Him that maketh the seven stars and Orion, that turneth the shadow of death into the morning and maketh the day dark with night, that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is His name that strengtheneth the spoil against the strong so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you're worshiping these golden calves. Are they getting anything done for you? Are they maintaining and preserving righteousness and, and, and justice in your society? Or have they abandoned you because they were no gods in the first place? He says, you know, you ought to give up on those gods. Look to the one that stepped out upon nothing, that pulled back the veil of darkness, that flung the stars into existence. You talk to the one that keeps the sun in its course, that placed the seven stars in Orion and said, stay there, and they stayed there. The God that created all things, the God that gives a wake-up call to the sun every morning and says, get up, it's time to shine. I'm talking about the God that every single evening tells the sun to go ahead and clock out because the night is ready to come. I'm talking about the God that called forth the waters and poured them out upon the face of the earth that holds the universe in the span of His hand. He says, that's the God you ought to be worshiping. The God of creation. Here's what He's saying. Abandon false gods and seek Him. And He gives two reasons. One, He reminds them that those gods are beneath Him. He said, why are you worshiping all these gods? Don't you know that the God that created you is so far above? And even you as, as His creation are so far above these false gods that you purport to worship. I told our Sunday school class, I, I don't know when it was, I guess we were studying through the book of Daniel. We've been in it for like 70 years. and um, We were talking about, uh, about ancient gods. And I think we were talking about Nebuchadnezzar and the great image that he set up. And you know what that image was, God had revealed to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream this image of four different types of metals. And there was a head of gold. That was the Babylonian Empire. It's what it represented. And then there were a, a chest and arms of, of silver. And that represented uh, the uh, Medo-Persian Empire that would defeat the Babylonians. And then there was a stomach and thighs of brass. And that represented the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great that would defeat the Medo-Persians. And then there were uh, two legs of, uh, of uh, iron. And then at the bottom, they were iron mingled with clay. And that represented the Roman Empire and its eventual weakening and destruction. And, uh, there's a context to all of that. But you know what Nebuchadnezzar did in return? Uh, the Bible tells us, in, that was in chapter 2. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar made him a great golden image. Reckon, wonder where he got that idea. I wonder, Brother Charlie, what that image looked like. I bet if you were to look at it, you'd say, you know that bears a striking resemblance to Nebuchadnezzar. just happens to look like him. And he chose gold, but I don't think he would have chosen gold except for the fact that that head of gold represented Babylon. He was saying this, I ain't going to follow God's image, I'll make my own image. And it's going to be all of gold representing the fact that no one's going to tell me when I will stop ruling. And you know, that sort of introduced and inducted us into a, a, a age of secular humanism in which men's gods were really just the embodiment of their own worst character flaws. The Greeks and the Romans really did this uh, probably to the most severe degree because here's what they would do. They would take the worst flaws in the human character and then almost like if you took and drew a line from that flaw out into eternity that ever expanded. You know, you, you've seen a projector screen, right? You take that projector screen, get right up on top of something, that image is tiny. But the further away you get, the bigger that gets. Well, almost like a projector, like they took that worst flaw and shined it out into the universe and that's almost their concept of their God. So you'd have greed in the human heart and 
they would take greed and they'd put it on steroids. They'd blow it up to the size of the universe and say, this is our God of greed. And they'd worship that God. They'd do the same thing with war. They'd do the same thing with lust. They would take all their worst impulses. They didn't, they didn't have gods of honor. They didn't have gods of, of honesty and truth and integrity and compassion. They took their worst impulses, blew them up to a million times and said, that's what we're going to worship. You know, that's what man does. Even to this day, that's what man does. We take our worst character flaw, and the Romans did the very same thing. You know, God did something beautiful. God did the opposite. So here's man, and he's saying, we're going to worship gods that are going to look like us, but we're going to make them as big as the universe. You know what God did? God said, I'm bigger than the universe. I measured the universe in the span of my hand. But Brother Ken, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tabernacle myself in flesh. But we're going to draw a line straight from glory all the way to a manger in Bethlehem. And I'm going to walk down and be born of the womb of a virgin. And I'm going to robe myself with flesh. And I'm going to walk amongst men in a way that they can see me. And they can know who God is. And they can know what God says. Isn't it amazing what God does? And to this day, that's how we know Him. We know Him as the Savior that died in our place. Not the one that accrued to Himself every manner of whim and of lust that He could, but the one that took Himself and laid Himself upon a cross, that laid down His life, that did not come for His own purpose. He did not come to be ministered unto, but He came to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. That's how we know who God is, is because He took Himself and robed Him in flesh and walked amongst us. That's the God that we serve. And here's what Amos says to the people of Israel. He said, these paltry gods that you serve, these gods of greed, these gods of lust. And by the way, that's all people are doing today. They just haven't carved out a little figurine and put it on a mantle. But they still are worshiping the God of lust. Watch a Hollywood movie. They're still worshiping the God of greed. Look at the way the monetary system in our world works. Hey, they're still worshiping the God of unchecked and, unchecked and profiteering warfare. Look at our past history. Have we, have we lived without a war going on uh, in the past 60 years? Why is it that we live in a society of perpetual war? I, 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 I'm going to quote a great theologian. Johnny Cash once said this, I, I'm, not, I'm not a hawk, but I might be a dove with claws. 1969, Madison Square Garden, look her up. I, I, I'm not a hawk, but I might be a dove with claws. What has mankind done? They've taken these same wicked character flaws and they still worship them today. They just do it without the golden calf. What does God say in response to that? God says, hey, listen, abandon those false gods. Turn away from those paltry things. Quit working for the money in your bank account. Quit working for the pleasure that you can derive for just a moment of time. Quit working for the uh, prominence and for the influence that you think you can accrue from mankind. Turn from those paltry gods and seek Me instead. Those gods are beneath Him. But then there's a second thing He says. He reminds them that those gods or the people that worship those gods are beholden to Him. He says that He strengtheneth the spoil against those that would lay prey to them. He reminds them that the only reason that they are prevailing is because He's allowing them to. And that all it takes is for God to step on the field of battle. And the whole dynamic changes. (laughs) 
Uh, I, I remember learning about uh, about as a little boy in Sunday school, learning about David uh, and him walking out. And I've often thought how dramatic it must have been whenever here is uh, in the Valley of Elah, the Israelites on one side and the Philistines on the other, and these armies are just sort of staring each other down. And every day, uh, for days and weeks, Goliath would come out and he would vaunt himself against the God of Israel. And he would taunt the God of Israel. And he would curse and blaspheme the God of Israel. And here comes this little shepherd boy, David, with sling in hand... And he goes and says, I'm not going to let anybody talk about my God. I'm going to step out. Is there not a cause? I'm going to go out and stand on the side. And if he throws us down, that's fine. But I'm not going to let him slander the name of my God. And I've often thought how dramatic, Brother Ken, it must have been when that little boy stepped out onto that field of battle. But you know, another thought occurred to me. There was something a lot more dramatic that happened that day. <laughs> he said, I come unto you not uh, with sword and spear, but I come into, unto you in the name of the Lord God of Israel. I'll tell you why it was a great day. It wasn't because the little shepherd boy stepped out on that battlefield. It was because the big God of glory stepped out on that battlefield right behind him or right in front of him and fought that battle because he, even David himself said, the battle is the Lord's. It's not ours. I'm saying this, that The fate of nations can turn upon God's whim, God's desire, God's blessing, God's favor, or God turning away from a country. And He reminds these people worshiping these false gods, hey, all it'll take is for me to just uh, glance or for me to look away from you and I can wreck and destroy your whole world. Listen, and God's not saying that because He hates them. God's not saying that because He despises them. He's saying that because He's trying to get them to understand that those false gods are not saving them. Those false gods are not sparing them. Those false gods are not securing them. That only the God of glory can watch over them. Abandon your false gods and worship Him. But then I see a third thing or a fourth thing or a fifth or a sixth. I don't know where we're at. But I see a a next thing. Look down at verse number 10. He begins to describe what he sees in Israel. He says, They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. For as much therefore as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, You have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold. By the way, that's one of only three times the word manifold is found in your Bible. Uh, Once it's talking about the uh, purposes of God. Once it's talking about the grace of God. And once it's talking about the sin of man. You know, it's a reminder uh, to me that no matter how large man's manifold sins may be, God has a manifold purpose to deal with it. And God has manifold grace to cover it. Somebody say amen there. He says, I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. Therefore, the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. He says this, seek good and not evil, that ye may live. Now, what's he saying here? I'm going to say it this way. I think he's saying abandon false righteousness and seek Him. What is good? Good, I think, biblically defined, scripturally defined, is that which is pleasing to God. For a person to be righteous is for them to live right with God. All those verses we read a moment ago, I think what he's saying is this. This is how you're living. But you know God has something far better for you. You call that righteousness. But he says that's not what righteousness is. He describes for us righteousness. So the first thing we see here is the fruit of false righteousness. Now, I need about four sermons to preach this, and I'm not going to do that to you. I'm going to try to hurry 
But I want you to notice it with me. In verse 10, he reminds us that false righteousness. So that is self-righteousness, right? Because that's what, that's what self-righteousness is, is a false righteousness. When you think you are righteous in and of yourself, you're wrong. Uh, you have you have created a sense of righteousness or a definition of it that is not biblically based because the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. That every every mouth is guilty, uh, is stopped, and every person is guilty before God. That we are all iniquitous, that we are all unclean, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if you think you're righteous without God, you're wrong. Or your definition of righteousness is not God's definition. So he he just looks at how they're living. And he says, here's the fruit of false righteousness. First, he says, they hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. You know the first thing in false righteousness is blindness. Produces blindness. It has to. You've got to change what you believe righteousness is. Otherwise, you'd have to admit that you're not righteous at all. Number two, it produces barrenness. He says this, uh, that they would build houses of hewn stones, but they wouldn't dwell in them. They had planted pleasant vineyards, but they would not drink wine of them. Now, he's talking explicitly about Israel as a kingdom, but it's a reminder to me that false righteousness doesn't produce anything worth having. It's a lot of work, but it doesn't really change anything. You know, a person can live their whole lives working and laboring and giving to charity and trying to do a good deed every day and trying to put others before themselves, and that won't get them one inch closer to being right with God. Not one bit. It produces barrenness. Number three, it produces brokenness. In verse 12, he says this, Your mighty, he says, they afflict the just, they take a bribe, they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. He said, I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. He said, you know, this false righteousness has just made you a worse sinner. It's compounded your sins. It's made you a worse person. And you know that's what self-righteousness does. It produces brokenness. If we don't have a standard by which to measure our actions, you know what we'll do? We'll live any old way we want and justify it as being right. We'll just live how we want and we'll say that's what righteousness is. You know what we call that? There's a big old fancy word for it today. It has corrupted our modern universities. It has corrupted our, our, our uh, secondary education. They're teaching it to little children. It's called moral relativism. It's the idea that they're really hitting a right, they're really hitting a wrong. There's just your right. You can do whatever you want. There's no such thing as right and wrong. It, our world is rife with it. It's the same nonsense that'll force a teacher that knows better to tell children that two plus two equals five because they don't want to hurt their feelings. The people that propagate that don't believe in any concrete uh, standard of truth in the first place. They don't believe there is such a thing as truth. And so why are you going to make a big deal out of a lie? Moral relativism. You know, God looks at it and He says, you just live any old way that you want and you call that righteousness. It has broken your lives. And then He says this, it produces bondage. He says, you know, when you create a world like this, the prudent man is going to keep silence. In other words, when you create a world that treats righteous men like 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 characters in a whack-a-mole game. You know what's eventually going to happen? They're going to quit putting their head up out of the machine. Can I tell you something about your life and mine? If you if you surround yourself with a fan base instead of friends, pretty soon you're not going to have anybody to help you when you make your life a wreck. That's one of the problems with social media. We don't have friends anymore. We have fan bases. We'll only allow people in our life if they're going to clap for us when we make a decision. And if they refuse to do so because they believe what we're doing is wrong, we, we X them out of our life. We destroy them. We treat them as a hostile enemy instead of somebody that's speaking the truth out of love. Let me tell you something. We need people that love God more than they love us. 
Because there's going to be times, and I'm talking about we need friends, we need family that love God more than they love us, Brother Ken. You know why? Because there's going to be times I'm going to be messed up, and you can't help me unless you love God more than you love me. Because you won't tell me the truth unless you love God more than you love me. I said we live in a world where all we want is fan bases, not friends. And as such, eventually, you know what happens? People say it ain't worth it. It ain't worth getting beat up on for telling them my opinion. So I'll just let them go ahead and live the way that they want. And I'll walk away. That microcosmically was what was happening on a large scale in Israel. All that it did when a man stood up for what was right was they got beat down by society. So eventually people quit uh, speaking up. You know what happened then? A, a, a cycle of bondage took place. Wasn't going to get no better. You know why? Because the only thing that was their hope and help, they had shoved and pushed away. That's the fruit of false righteousness. But you know, I'm glad it don't end there. Because we find here the testimony of true righteousness. I'll hurry. Don't get worried. Listen. Look what he says. He says, seek good and not evil. Can I say something at a very fundamental level? That tells me there's such a thing as good and there's such a thing as evil. There are some things that are wrong, not because God's mad at you, but because you did something wrong. And I hate to tell you this, but friend, it's not all about us. If you think God sat there before the world began and said, I'm going to write this thing and make it sin to make Tim Tannis angry, I'm sorry, Tim, you think too much of yourself. If you think, Brother Charlie, that the Lord sat down before the world started and said, I really want to ruin Charlie McGinley's day, so I'm going to make this a sin, I'm sorry, you think too much of yourself. See, the reality is right is right, wrong is wrong, good is good, evil is evil. And if we run afoul of the truth of the Word of God, It's not because God entrapped us. I'd say God pretty much wants us to know what's right and wrong, wouldn't you? He tells us there's good and there's evil. There's right and there's wrong. And as such, you know what you ought to do? You ought to seek good and not evil. You ought to try to be righteous. Now, here's the problem though. How can a man be righteous with God? That's what Job asked. How can a man be righteous with God? Well, God tells us how we can be righteous. And it's interesting because God's relationship with Israel is almost like an inversion of His relationship with, with us as, as, as sinners, us as Gentiles, I mean. God made a covenant relationship with Israel. He chose them as a people. You know what God did when He saved Gentiles? He died for the whole world. He died for the whole world. You know what God did before He ever gave His Word, written Word, down? You know what He did? He came and He spoke to a man by the name of Abraham. And He called him out from amongst His family, from amongst His world. And He said, leave everything and you'll know Me. You know, that's the inversion of what Christ said in the New Testament. In the New Testament, for us Gentiles, God gave us His Word first. And He said, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And God didn't say, walk out and leave this world and then you can know Me instead. He said, if you know Me, you'll forsake the world and you'll follow Me. So there's almost an inversion here. So can I flip it around? That'd be okay. I think I got enough, enough standing to do that. And I'll just sort of preach it in reverse. How is righteousness produced? Well, look at the end of verse number 15. He says, hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. Now, why were they supposed to do this? He said, it may be that the Lord God of hosts will be, now what's this next word? Gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. So for the Jew, it ended with grace. But you know, for us Gentiles, it begins with the grace of God. How can a man be righteous before God? Well, not in and of his own righteousness, not in and of his own good works, 
No, he needs the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's the grace of God that appeareth unto all men and bringeth salvation, teaching us uh, that we should uh, forsake this world that's uh, behind us and we should live soberly and righteously in this present world that we're living in. In other words, how do we become righteous before God, Brother Fred? Through the grace of God. Through the grace of God. Only by God's grace. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean this, that we don't deserve God's righteousness. We've not earned God's righteousness. We couldn't pay for God's righteousness. We sure enough can't keep God's righteousness. But instead, God looks and says, I'm just going to give it to you. I'm going to do that by causing my son to die in your place on Calvary. So, it's produced by the present of grace. Number two, you know how it's produced? He says in verse 15, Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. He's saying, learn what's right, learn what's wrong, and do what's right. He's giving them some precepts. I'd say this, Brother Ken, we, we become righteous, number one, it's produced by the present of grace. God, by His grace, bestows upon us rightness with Him. and We are made righteous in the eyes of God. But how do we get this life to be righteous? How can we do that? Well, secondly, it's produced by the precepts of God's Word. We learn what God says is right and wrong, and then we do what's right. We learn what God expects out of us, and then we do it. We obey Him. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, I just thought it was all about loving God. Well, you don't really have to choose. Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, a person's never had to choose between loving God and doing what the Word says. They've always been able to do both. And in fact, they've always done one by doing the other. You want to love the Lord? Keep His commandments. We're righteous by the precepts of God's Word. Now, somebody out there is going to say, now, wait a minute, preacher. I got that, I got that Romans 7 syndrome. You know what Romans 7 is? Romans 7 is when Paul is struggling with his own human frailty and infirmity. And he says, you know, I'm having trouble with this thing of living right. He said, that which I would, I do not, and that which I would not, that do I. He said, the things that I know that are sin, I I do those things even though I know I shouldn't do those things. And, And the things that I know are right that I should be doing, he said, I find not how to do those things. He said, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul said, you know, funny thing about it, I may have a new nature, but I've still got an old nature hanging around too. Paul said, I have a desire to do what's right, but guess what? Temptation didn't leave me alone just because I got born again. I still have to struggle in trying to do what's right. That Romans 7 syndrome, anybody ever had it? I live with it daily. I'm perpetually of... It's a chronic thing in my life. And can I tell you something? It's chronic in yours too. You, you know when a chronic illness ends, right? When you die and go on to glory. You know when that chronic illness is going to end? When you die and go on to glory and you're given a new body and this vile body is made like on his glorious body. It's a chronic disease. So you're going to have to learn how to manage it. That's what you do with a chronic disease. You know you ain't going to cure it. You've got to learn how to manage it. So how do you manage it? You know that Amos even gives us the answer to that? Remember, we're kind of looking at this in reverse order because God deals with Gentiles kind of in the opposite way that He deals with Jews. So... He says, the reason you ought to do this is it may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. So for us Gentiles, it starts with the present of grace. He says, you ought to hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. You ought to learn what's right, learn what's wrong, do what's right. In other words, it's produced by the precepts of God's Word. But sometimes, like Brother Paul, we find that what we desire to do, we do not do. And we struggle in this life to let God have the victory. So how can we overcome that? Well, look back at verse 14. What was the first thing he said? He said, seek good and not evil that ye may live. And 
And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. In other words, it's produced by the present of grace. It's how we're made righteous before God. It's produced by the precepts of God's Word. It's how we learn what is right and how to live right. But when we struggle to live right, you know what helps us live right? It's produced by the presence of God in our life. Now, Israel, when God dwelt amongst Israel, He'd sit down in His glory upon the mercy seat there in the, in the tabernacle or in the temple. But you know, we don't have a temple. Well, let me go back. We do have a temple. It's just that temple is not made of, uh, of shittim wood and of, of brass and of, of silver and of gold and, and of badger skin or, or of any of that. You know, we have a temple, but you know what God says? He says, ye are the temple of God. You are the house of God. You're the temple, Paul said, of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost dwells within us and lives within us. So God says to Israel, I want you to live right, and I'm going to come down there, and I'm going to dwell with you, and I'm going to help you live right. You know what He says to us New Testament believers? I want you to live right. I want you to have true righteousness. Abandon false righteousness. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to come down, and I'm going to live in you. And you're going to be the temple of the living God. I'm going to dwell in you. And when you do wrong, I'm going to let you know that you've done wrong. When you have a choice to make, and you don't know what to do, I'm going to lead you, and I'm going to guide you into all truth. In other words, by the presence of the Holy Ghost in our life. That's how righteousness is effectuated in us. And then, Brother Ken, we start getting to really the heart of the matter. Paul himself said it. You know this verse. You can quote it with me. Galatians 2.20 said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Not faith in the Son of God, the faith of the Son of God. So it's His faith. So in other words, it's not me trying to do this thing. It's not me saying, I'm going to be like Jesus. It's me saying, I can't be like Jesus. So Lord, would you lead me? Would you guide me? Would you show me how to live? If I do wrong and you convict me, I'm not going to get bowed up on you. I'm not going to get prideful on you. I'm going to admit I've done something wrong. I'm going to change what I'm doing. And letting His life live through us to the glory of God. He says, abandon your false righteousness. Abandon your self-righteousness. Quit trying to do this thing on your own because all it does is produce blindness and barrenness and brokenness and bondage. And instead, he says, you ought to get some of my righteousness. Produced by the grace of God. If you've never tasted of the Lord, of the grace of God, if you've never been born again, that's where it starts. Receiving Christ as your personal Savior. You can't be righteous apart from Him. He is righteousness. Uh, Paul said He's made unto us righteousness. You can't be righteous without Him. Then after we've been born again, we've got to learn what, what the Bible teaches. Learn what is right. Learn what is wrong. Do what is right. In those days when we struggle, can I tell you something? It'll mostly be days that end in why. Those days that we struggle, here, here's what He did. He gave us a comfort to guide us into all truth, to convict us. God took up residence in our life and in our soul, and He leads us and guides us into all truth and into all righteousness. You know what the Christian life is all about? It's all about seeking Him. Job said, how can a man be righteous with God? You know, one of his other friends asked another question that I think is pretty important. One of his friends said, can a man by searching find God? Can a man by seeking find God? You know, the whole New Testament is an answer to that. Uh, we don't have to seek Him. He comes looking for us. And if we'll only be willing to receive Him and His presence in our life and lean upon Him, you know why we wouldn't be seeking Him? Because we've turned away from Him. 
He's seeking us, Brother Kim. So if here He is seeking us, but we ain't got a relationship with Him, it's because we must have turned around and started seeking something else. How do we get right with God? Well, here's what we do. You remember that word repentance? It means a 180 degree turn, an about face. He's just right behind us. That's where He was in the garden. I'm enjoying this. I'm, I'm getting, open your Bibles again. No, I'm joking. I'm closing. Don't get nervous. You know where He was in the garden? He's right behind Mary. He said, Mary. She turned and saw him. You know what you'll find? He's speaking your name tonight. And you know where he's at? He's just standing right behind you. You know what it means to seek him? It just means stop, turn. And you know, you'll find him right there. He's seeking you, so all you have to do is quit running away from him. Turn, and you'll find him right there. You know what you ought to do? You ought to meet him at this altar. If you can't be at this altar, you ought to meet him on the altar of your heart. But I beg of you tonight, if you in your life have found yourself drifting, Abandon those things. Turn and seek Him and He'll be found of you. Let's bow tonight as a musician comes to play. Father, bless His invitation. May it bring glory to the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.